parasha which is but one chapter long and focuses mainly on two topics, Shemitah and Yovel, the sabbatical and jubilee years. Over the last few classes, we've been discussing laws related to Kedushat Tazman, the sanctity of time. This chapter, Vayikra Perek Chavhei, chapter 25, segues into the concept of Kedushat Tamakom, sacred space, as the laws of Shemitah and Yovel revolve around both time and land, with their seven-year cycles and ensuing land-related laws. This dual theme of land and time is emphasized through the chapter's milim manchot, or guiding words, words which repeat a significant amount of times throughout a unit of text and serve to highlight a theme or message. In our chapter, the word shana, year, appears 37 times, while the word eretz, land, appears 20 times. Appropriately, the unit that deals with Shemitah, the sabbatical year, mentions Shabbat in its various forms seven times, and the unit which deals with the Jubilee year mentions Yovel 14 times, also a multiple of seven. Before we delve into these laws in the next couple of classes, I wanted to outline the parasha as a whole and devote most of this class to a discussion of the general concept of sacred space. Our chapter divides into two main units, with verses 1 through 24 speaking about the basic laws of Shemitah and Yovel, and the rest of the chapter speaking of treatment of the impoverished in the context of these laws. The combination of the two sets of laws frames the commands of Shemitah and Yovel as being related to social justice. Yet, within the passages themselves which speak of each mitzvah, this welfare aspect is not highlighted, and the poor and needy are not mentioned at all. Rather, we are told that we must let the land lie fallow because we need to make a Shabbat lahashem. The mitzvah is presented as being a mitzvah bin adam lemakom, between man and God, rather than man and his fellow man. We'll speak more about this idea, whether Shemitah and Yovel are laws which are meant to aid the poor, or laws meant to help us recognize Hashem as owner of the world, as we continue learning about the two institutions. Let's further break down each half of the chapter. Within the first unit, verses 1 through 7 focus, focus on Shemitah and speak of the prohibition of working the land during the sabbatical year and the need to leave the produce for all to take. Verses 8-17 through 17 then speak of the mitzvah of Yovel, laying out three directives regarding the Jubilee year. First, similar to the laws governing the Shemitah year, one is not allowed to work the land, and anything that grows is free for all to take. Second, all land that was sold returns to its original owners. And third, all slaves are freed. Verses 18 through 22 follow with a promise that observance of these very difficult commands, which require tremendous faith in God, will result in Hashem securing the land and in an abundance of crops which will sustain the people during the years in which the land lies fallow. Finally, verses 23 and 24 conclude the unit, segueing into the next set of laws regarding land sales and land redemption. The second half of the chapter divides into four subsections each opening with the phrase, and if your brother becomes impoverished. The first of these subsections, verses 25 through 34, deals with the concept of land redemption. If someone who became poor, was forced to sell their land or home, the Torah lays out in what circumstances he may redeem it before the Jubilee year. Verses 35 through 38 then speak of the prohibition against taking interest on a loan. The Torah teaches that if someone becomes poor, again, and needs a loan, we should help him get back on his feet 
and provide him with the necessary loan. But we must make sure not to take interest on that loan. The rest of the chapter speaks of someone who is so destitute, again that phrase, that he is forced to sell himself into slavery. Verses 39 through 46 speaks of proper treatment of such slaves, and verses 47 through 55 of the need to redeem someone who has sold himself to a Gentile. The parasha ends with two concluding verses from chapter 26, which warn against idolatry and to observe Shabbat. The connection between these verses and the themes of the rest of the parsha is not at all obvious, and Amir Tashem will speak about it when we get to those verses. As a whole, then, the parsha speaks of mitzvot dealing with working, or perhaps more accurately, not working the land, selling and redeeming land, and buying or redeeming slaves. Hashem explains the various laws of the chapter with two similar statements. You may not sell land forever, kili ha'aretz, because the land is mine. And you may not sell a man forever, kili v'nei Yisrael avadim, avadaihim, because b'nei Yisrael are my servants, not yours. Boshmita and Yovel, the two topics of our chapter, are mitzvot tatliyot ba'aretz, land-related mitzvot whose obligation is dependent on living in Eretz Yisrael. Other such mitzvot include orla, the prohibition to eat the fruit of a tree in its first three years, bikurim, the giving of first fruits, trumot and masrot, portions of one's produce which must be given to the kohen or levi, and the laws of pe'ah, leket, and shechacha, portions of one's crops which must go to the poor. All of these mitzvot can be observed only when living in Eretz Yisrael. The concept of mitzvot tetziyot ba'aretz is a somewhat strange phenomenon. If we understand the system of mitzvot to present the best way to live one's life, and if we assume that mitzvot are mandated because they are inherently positive actions, one wonders why then are not all of them obligatory wherever one is living? Why should leaving the corner of one's field for the poor be dependent on living in Israel? If there's intrinsic value in a sabbatical year and having the land lie fallow and allowing all to partake of it, why should it matter where one is doing one's farming? It's possible that at least some of the laws which are dependent on the land are practiced only in Israel due to practical concerns. For example, as many of these mitzvot require the presence of the Beit HaMikdash, perhaps living too far away provides an exemption for purely mundane reasons. Alternatively, some laws might require having autonomy in one's place of residence. If so, practically, an exemption must be made when this is not the case. These concerns, though, cannot explain all such mitzvot which makes us wonder if, alternatively, these mitzvot actually stem from the sanctity of the land of Israel. Israel, being Hashem's chosen land, perhaps requires a higher standard of behavior. When working this land in particular, there are certain laws which govern our actions because this land is special. Perhaps, too, because this land is Hashem's present to the nation, it is extra important that we constantly recognize it as such. Many of the laws that are dependent on the land might be intended to relay the message, you, the people, are not the real owners of this land, Hashem is. So, for example, we bring Bikurim to thank Hashem for our first fruits, in recognition that it is due to Him that they grew. We have seen that even laws which at first glance appear to be instituted for social welfare have also been explained in this manner. When we spoke about the laws of Peah and Leket back in chapter 19, the laws mandating leaving some of our crops for the poor, 
We noted how Rav Hirsch maintains that the purpose behind these commandments is also to recognize that Hashem is owner of the land. It is specifically because our produce ultimately comes from Hashem that we cannot keep it only for ourselves, but must share of it with others. Hashem, the real owner of the land, actually did not give it to any one individual, but he gave it to all to benefit from. We might still ask, though, what does it mean for a place to be holy? Is there something intrinsically different about the land of Israel than any other land? Is it special because Hashem gave it to us? Or did he give it to us because it's special? Several Jewish thinkers suggest that really there is something inherent in the land and climate of Israel which is different than other places. In his philosophical work known as the Kuzari, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi attempts to explain the uniqueness of Israel by way of an analogy. He points out that all would agree that certain lands might be better suited for growing grapes or wheat than others, while other lands might have an advantage in their abundance of minerals or other natural resources. Israel, he suggests, has an advantage over other countries in its spiritual resources. This land is simply best suited for imbuing one with spirituality. One might of course question, but there are many people living in Israel who are not religious, not observant or at all spiritual in their outlook. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi responds, the fact that a certain land is inherently good for growing grapes does not mean that it will produce grapes on its own. One still needs to sow and water and care for the vineyard. So too, Eretz Yisrael might have spiritual seeds, but these need to be watered and nourished like anything else. On the flip side too, the fact that Israel is blessed with spiritual resources need not mean that there can be no spirituality anywhere else. Just as grapes can be grown in many lands, even if the ground and climate might not be ideal, spirituality might be attained in many places. It will simply take more effort. Nonetheless, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi maintains that there are certain things which one really cannot attain anywhere else, which really are limited to getting only in Eretz Yisrael. The Inyan Ha'eloki, the ability to prophesy, he says, is a gift given only to those living in Eretz Yisrael, or perhaps also to those prophesying about Eretz Yisrael. Rav Kook similarly suggests that in certain realms, one will not be able to achieve the same results outside of Israel as inside. He writes, There is a huge difference between the Torah of the land of Israel and the Torah of the diaspora. The Eretz Yisrael, Shefa Ruach HaKodesh, Midparitz Lachul, Akol Tamit Chacham, Shemavakesh Lamod Torah Lishma, the Kalva Homer, Akibut Shal Tamit Chachamim. In the land of Israel, the abundance of the Holy Spirit spreads to fall on every Torah scholar who wishes to, t- to study Torah for its own sake, let alone on groups of Tamit Chachamim. Baruach HaKlali, Hashofea Binoam, Volech Umit Pashet, Hu Harodeira Tapratim, and the profuse spirit spreads the details and explains the halachot, which is not the case abroad. Such a holy spirit cannot be inhaled in impure air or an unclean soil. The Ramban famously goes further to suggest that actually, 
one's Judaism as a whole must be inherently different inside and outside of Eretz Yisrael, because observance of mitzvot is not the same in both. He claims that observance of many laws in Chutz Laaretz, outside of Israel, is really simply practiced for one's return. So that they not, should not be new to you when you return to Israel. The fact that Eretz Israel might be inherently holy and unique is not so surprising, given the fact that Hashem promised it to the people of Israel. What about other places, though? Is there sacred space outside of Israel? If so, what makes such places so? Are they inherently holy from the beginning of time, or does an event make them holy? In Tanakh, Places which are referred to as Kadosh are usually given that appellation because Hashem's presence is found there. For example, when Hashem appears to Moshe at the Sneh, He tells him to remove his shoes because this is holy ground. The people must put a border around Mount Sinai and sanctify it or perhaps separate from it because God's presence is about to descend. It seems, though, that in both these cases, as soon as Hashem departs, the sanctity of the place might also depart. Thus, Hashem tells the people that with the blast of the shofar, presumably the sign of Hashem's departure from Mount Sinai, the people might once again touch the mountain. This would suggest that there is such a thing as temporary kedusha, that sacred space might not always be inherently so. Mount Sinai was holy because that is where Hashem decided to reveal Himself. But when He is not revealed, it no longer maintains that status. A place might take on Kedusha because of an event that happened there, or be Kadosh only while that event is occurring. The Mishnah Mesachat Kelim discusses various places within Eretz Yisrael, which all have differing degrees of sanctity, moving from Eretz Yisrael as a whole, to Yerushalayim, to Har Habayit, to the Kodesh HaKadashim with the highest level of holiness. Here too we might ask, were these, heights, were these sites holy from time immemorial? The Tanchuma suggests that maybe they were, asserting that Yerushalayim lies at the heart of the world and from it the heavens and, earths were, and, the heavens and earth were created. Rambam, following Chazal, maintains that Yerushalayim and the site of the Mikdash specifically have a history of holiness, being a site of divine worship throughout the ages. It was the place where Avraham set up an altar to bind Yitzchak and where Adam, Cain, Hevel, and Noach all sacrificed to Hashem. Bavli Psachim presents Yitzchak and Yaakov praying at Har HaMoriah as well. This was no coincidence, but a result of the location's inherent sanctity. At the same time, it should be noted that none of this is evident from Torah itself. In fact, Yerushalayim is not named even once in the entire Torah. The patriarchs call out to Hashem and set up altars in many locations, including Shechem, Beidel, Chevron, and Be'er Sheva. And it was these which were the spiritual censors of the era. Yerushalayim is conspicuously absent from the list, suggesting that the patriarchs did not view it as being one of the more spiritual censors. Though the Akedah took place in Yerushalayim, the text does not highlight, does not highlight this fact only mentioning one of the mountains in the land of Moriah, again supporting the idea that it was not yet considered to be of religious import. This would suggest that perhaps Hashem did not originally imbue Yerushalayim with extra sanctity, but only after King David chose Yerushalayim as his capital, 
bringing the ark to rest there. And after Shlomo built the Mikdash at Mount Moriah, did these places gain their holy status. The Sifrei alludes to this same idea when it speaks about the verse, Ki'im el hamakom har Hashem, to the place which Hashem will choose, which refers to the site of the Mikdash, though it does not mention Yerushalayim by name. The Midrash questions whether this chosen place will be determined by the prophet or by man. The place which Hashem will choose, seek it via a prophet. Should one wait until the prophet tells you? No, you should not wait, as the verse teaches, to his, to his dwelling place you should seek and come. Drosh you should seek and come, seek and find, and then the prophet will tell you. You should find it, and afterwards the prophet will affirm it. The Midrash concludes that the site of the Mikdash will not be chosen by the prophet. It will not be dictated by Hashem, but rather by man himself. It is incumbent on man to seek and find the place of the Mikdash and for man to make it holy. It seems then that there might be certain places which do indeed have inherent sanctity, others which gain holiness due to divine revelation, and yet there are other places which become sacred only because we make them so. Eretz Yisrael might have, might have inherent Kedusha, and with it extra obligations such as the mitzvot tatuyot ba'aretz, including Shemitah and Yovel, the subjects of our Parsha. It would seem, though, that the more that we sanctify Israel through our deeds and mitzvot, the more sanctified that it will be. With that fairly long introduction, let's briefly open up the parasha itself. The first verse of the parasha, at first glance, seems somewhat mundane. We are told, And Hashem spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai, saying, This verse, though, has raised a disproportionate amount of commentary. The Sifra, the Midrash Halakha in our verse, asks a well-known question formulated by Rashi as follows. What does Shemitah have to do with Mount Sinai? Weren't all the commandments given at Sinai? The Midrash and Rashi are assuming that all the commandments were given to Moshe when he went up the mountain after the giving of the Decalogue. If so, they ask, why does the Torah single out here the fact that the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel were also given there. Is it not obvious? All mitzvot were given on the mountain. They answer that the verse teaches a general fact, that not only did Hashem teach generalities at Sinai, but that he also explained the minutiae of every law at the same time. This is learned from Shemitah specifically, since it is mentioned in Shemot 23 in a general way, but elaborated upon here in Vayikra 25, where it specifies that this elaboration took place at Sinai. Others disagree with Rashi and suggest that a verse should be contrasted with the opening of Sefer Vayikra, which reads, Vayikra a Moshe, Vaydaber Hashem elav me Ohel Moed lemor. And Hashem spoke to Moshe from the Ohel Moed. This would suggest that really not all commandments, or at least not all their details, were given at Sinai, but rather that they were given consistently throughout the 40 years and conveyed to Moshe in the Ohel Moed as this verse states. Prior to the building of the tabernacle, 
most commandments were indeed conveyed to Moshe on Mount Sinai. However, following the construction of the tabernacle, the locus of divine revelation naturally shifted to the Holy of Holies, and so Sefer Vayikra opens with Hashem speaking from there. If so, one must still question, why then does the Torah state that the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel were given on Har Sinai? Considering their location at the end of Sefer Vayikra, should they not too have been given in the Oal Moed? This leads Ibn Ezra to suggest that our chapters are achronological and were in fact given over before the other mitzvot spoken of in Sefer Vayikra, before the sin of the golden calf and the construction of the tabernacle, together with the other mitzvot given at Sinai. In fact, according to Ibn Ezra, the laws of Shemitah and the blessing and curses which follow in Parashat V'chukotai were all part of the covenant at Sinai, discussed in Shemot 24 back in Parashat Mishpatim. At that point, had it not been for the sin of the golden calf, the people's next stop was supposed to be Eretz Yisrael. As such, it made a lot of sense to make a covenant for observance and to highlight the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel, two mitzvot that are dependent on living in Eretz Yisrael. Ibn Ezra further points out that not only is observance of these mitzvot dependent on living in Israel, living in Israel is dependent on observing them. In Parashat V'chukotai, we are taught that if the people do not observe the sabbatical years, it will result in exile. It seems that even more than other mitzvot tatsuyot ba'aret, Shemitah and Yovel specifically are tied to the land and the land to them. And so, as the people stood on the eve of entry to the land, they are the mitzvot which are highlighted. The obvious question, of course, is if these mitzvot were indeed relayed in Shemot chapter 24, why do they first appear in the verses at the end of Sefer Vayikra? This leads Ramban to suggest a variation of Ibn Ezra's idea. He posits, like Ibn Ezra, that the laws of Shemitah were originally given in the context of the covenant at Sinai in Parashat Mishpatim. Yet, due to the sin of the golden calf, entry into the land was delayed and the covenant needed to be renewed. Thus, Parashat Bahar and Parashat Bechukotai are really a renewal of the covenant discussed first in Shemot. As the nation once again stands ready to enter the land, Hashem once again teaches the people about the mitzvot of Shemitah and Yovel, two laws which are so intertwined with the land of Israel that not only is their observance dependent on living in Eretz Yisrael, but living in Israel is dependent on observing them. Hashem reminds the people that living in Eretz Yisrael is conditional on keeping mitzvot, chief among them, Shemitah and Yovel. In our next class, we'll explore the mitzvah of Shemitah more in depth and delve into why it is singled out as being the potential cause of the nation's exile. What makes this mitzvah so significant?